How's it going everybody? I hope everybody's had a good weekend. In between we had a successful or at least what I feel like is a successful launch of Innistrad Midnight Hunt. And we will talk more about how that set seems to be impacting the standard format in the next episode. But for now, let's dive into our first segment. Our first segment every episode is Budget Spotlight. Brought to you by our sponsor over at PureMTGO.com. PureMTGO is one of the largest collections of magic content on the web. They've got something for everybody. The Constructed Criticism Network has something for most of the competitive-minded players, but PureMTGO has something for literally everybody. Commander, Pauper, Standard Modern Pioneer, Vintage Cube, you know, Penny Dreadful. Like, you, if, if you dig deep enough, you can find what you're looking for. Uh... And actually, their sponsor is one of the price models I use for this. So, for those of you who have never tuned in before, Budget Spotlight is a segment where I highlight four cards, or in this case, this week, four sort of classifications of cards that I feel like are not getting the the love that they deserve, either from the the played standpoint, like how much they're being played, or... On the financial side, they are just, they feel like they are worth more than their price tag would suggest. And in a little bit of a departure from what we normally do, we're actually doing all commons this week. Uh, just a little aside before we dive in, we are field testing a new headset for my wife this week. If you're wondering why the audio probably sounds a little bit different, if I like it, I may pick one up. So just keep that in mind. Something to chew on for a little while. Let it marinate. Anybody who knows what I do for a living finds that hilarious. So, our first card this week is one that you have undoubtedly seen way too many times already over the weekend with the release of Innistrad Midnight Hunt, and that is Delver of Secrets and its Insectile Aberration form. So, Delver of Secrets is a 1-mana, one 1-1 one human wizard. At the beginning of your upkeep, you can look at the top card of your library... If it's an instant or sorcery, you can choose to reveal it to your opponent. If you do, you can transform this creature. And the transformed side of Delver of Secrets is, of course, a 3-2 with flying. So, for all intents and purposes, this is a 1-mana, 3-2 creature with flying. Last time I heard, those are pretty good. Uh, price point on Delver of Secrets is $0.50, cents, give or take a few, in paper, or... 0.03 tickets on MTGO traders. Uh, for sidebar, the price points I use are from Cool Stuff Inc. for paper and MTGO traders for Magic Online because those are the vendors that I use. As a bang for buck investment goes, it is really hard to beat just a flagship threat for an entire archetype that's about that is now, or at least will be next week in paper. A legal archetype in literally every format that anybody really cares about. At least on the competitive side. Commander players, calm down. We'll, we'll get to you in a minute. <laughs> for, and for those who don't know, this is my actual favorite magic card. Like, other people like boluses or planeswalkers, and I have my favorites among those categories. You know, uh, Gideon Hura is one of my favorite planeswalkers. Uh... Cruel Ultimatum is one of my favorite big dumb spells. 
But Delver of Secrets is just my favorite magic card. There's something so satisfying to me about just dropping this thing on turn one. And let's just see how the rest of the game goes. Either you have the out or you don't. And either you have the out now or it doesn't matter. It's the kind of card that just dictates the terms of engagement, but it doesn't do it in as clear a manner as something like a Lava Spike or a Goblin Guide or even, you know, Tapped Hallowed Fountain. Ta all of those things dictate terms of engagement to your opponent pretty clearly, but Delver of Secrets does a little bit of a different job. It tells your opponent, hey, you're in for an interesting game. Because either you're going to be able to answer this right away and things are going to go on from here, or... I've got an answer for your answer, and this thing's going to get in a few good swings and put you nearly dead so that Burn can finish you off. Like, it's the kind of creature that doesn't require a ton of synergy to make good. You just want to play a bunch of instants and sorceries. And again, for 50 cents or .03 tickets, it's really hard to do better. This is the premier threat to me in it almost takes over the, that mantra, takes over that, that job in Pioneer from the moment it was announced in this set. It's still, like, it's playable in Modern. I don't know if it's a good threat in Modern, but it's playable. You can still play it. Uh, and it picks up wonderfully in Legacy with access to cards like Brainstorm and uh, ponder and preordain and just all the really nice good blue cards that you get to play in legacy so just top to bottom it is really hard to argue with this as an investment piece and if i've not talked about this card on the show before a i'm going to be surprised and b i have not been doing my job because i could gush over how much i love delver for days on end second up on the list and this one is a little bit of a unique one Again, I said we're doing commons this week as part of sort of the theme of the episode. Uh, commons, sometimes you just need to kill a big thing. And Scred is here to do that for you. Scred is a single red mana for an instant. Deals damage, it deals X damage to target creature where X is the number of snow lands you control. Or maybe it's snow permanents you control. I just always see it used as snow lands because you don't have any other snow permanents in your deck, but regardless. It's either uh, X is the number of snow lands you control or X is the number of snow permanents you control, regardless. Scred is $1 in paper and two thirty-seven in tickets. 2.37 tickets on Magic Online. This is a top three pauper spot removal spell with some legs and similar roles in modern like you just gotta play snow you play snow basics there's there's snow reason not to if you if you want to run and this is another reason to draw you in that direction yes i know that was a bad pun i know that was a really bad pun it's, it's, you, you don't have to be so cold about it <laughs> it does come with the unfortunate caveat of having to get snow basics when you're talking about playing it you know, if you don't just have those, that's that's not a free roll, unfortunately. Uh, because to this day, they have only been printed, I think, four times. Ice Age block, or specifically Ice Age, if I'm not mistaken. Ice Age, uh, Cold Snap, 
one of the modern, I think it was uh, Modern Horizons 1 or 2. I think it was Modern Horizons 1. And then Kaldheim. It was the only four times we've had Snowlands printed. As opposed to Basic Lands, which everybody just gives you tons of for free, Snowlands are a little bit harder to come by. They don't print them every set. As such, they are harder to get into. But, Scred is one of those cards, like, you just get people with it every once in a while. Game goes long, opponent taps out for Big Dumb Thing, you kill Big Dumb Thing for one mana and still have mana left over to do stuff. In Pauper, it's great. Because you generally play it in blue-red Delver decks. <laughs> I have a problem. I can't help it. I just... You could call it an aberration, but it's not very insectile. Anyway. It's just one of those cards that's really good at what it does. And because of that fact, it just... It, it, it hits the mark for me. Even at the inflated price tag of Magic Online, because it's the place you can play Pauper reliably... It's not unreasonable at that price point, and I think that's kind of important to drive home here. Let's see what I did there. So, moving on, our next card on the list is actually two cards. And these cards are chosen with the idea of multiplicity in mind, multiple use in mind. I could have put Brainstorm, Ponder, Preordain, Consider, Opt, all of the one-mana blue cantrips on this list... But I chose to stick to the two that are both modern legal and modern playable. And those two are Sleight of Hand and Serum Visions. Sleight of Hand is... Sleight of Hand clocks in at about a dollar. Serum Visions about two. Uh, where is that? Sleight of Hand is .03 tickets, same as Delver, where Serum Visions is, I think, .26. With like a quarter of a ticket. So, these two cards form the bedrock of your cantrip suites in Modern. If you want to play a tempo-oriented deck, or you want to play a Spells Matter deck with blue mana in it, you're going to want to play these. At least one of them, probably both. And then if you're playing Phoenix, you also want to play Opt and Consider because you need all of the cantrips. But that's beside the point. Shine a little arc light on that. The reason these are so good is because they're not only commons, they're not only valuable usage, or valuable resources, sorry, got ahead of my words in my head here. They're valuable resources for modern. They're also valuable resources for Pauper if you don't have access to Brainstorm Ponder. Like, they're still good. They're not as good. But if you gotta get there first, you know, you gotta get something first. Get the ones you can use in more places. Sort of a, you know, classic bang-for-buck investment piece. It's hard to beat sleight-of-hand serum visions. Because you can play them in these formats. If you end up not playing those formats for a while, they're still viable in Commander as ways to cast spells and dig through your deck. Obviously, they're not as good in Commander as they are in 60-card formats, but they're still fine. They're still pauper legal. They're still modern legal. I mean, just top to bottom, it's 
not a bad place to be, especially not for the price point. You know, a dollar or two on the paper side and less than a quarter or right around a quarter on Magic Online. So, I mean, we can do worse. And last but not least, for our commander-oriented players, we got to talk about the Signets. Just all of them. We're not talking about one of them. We're talking about all of them. Because as foundations for a format go, yes, I know everybody talks about Soul Ring, Mana Crypt, Grim Monolith, Mana Vault, all these expensive reserve list cards. But if you are just looking to break into Commander you've never really played before, get you a set of Signets. Just get one of each. And I'm going to tell you why. Their price point ranges from $0.50 cents to $2.50. So somewhere between a sixth and five-sixths of a soul ring. Which is what you want to use to cast these on turn one, ideally. It is... The, uh, for those of you who don't know, there's one in every color pair. There are two generic mana to cast their artifacts, and then for one mana you can tap the signet for one generic mana you can tap the signet and add one of each color of the guilds so the 10 ravnica guilds so golgari signet makes a taps for a generic and makes a green black demir signet taps and makes a blue black is it signet taps and makes a blue and a red so on and so forth it's not complicated as to how these cards work but what they do is they provide the foundation for the experience of commander which is to say, they get you interested in artifacts that tap for mana, which is basically what the format's built around. If we're being honest, if we're being honest with ourselves and each other, that's what Commander's built around, is mana rocks. You want to play it? You, you, don't be fooled by the rocks that I got, alright? So, as an investment piece for getting into a format goes... Bang for buck wise, basically Soul Ring is the only thing better in terms of value in gameplay for the amount of money you spend. The only thing better is Soul Ring, and only because it lets you cast a signet on turn one and have access to five mana next turn, if not more, depending. So just all the way around, it, it's, it doesn't have to be complicated. We don't have to have some, some sort of wild, crazy gameplay reason for loving Signets. Although, obviously not for nothing, any mana rock that can tap for a generic, a Signet, Isochron Scepter, and Dramatic Reversal is infinite mana and infinite storm for those of you who are, in fact, keeping tabs on all of this. So, you know. Just a, a, a neat little fun fact for everybody. But, that's going to wrap up Budget Spotlight. Again, don't forget to go check out the sponsor at Pure MTGO. They've got something for everybody. And let's move on to our next segment. So moving on to our next segment, we have Brew of the Week. And Brew of the Week is sponsored by Grey Viking Games, our affiliate program. So, uh, for those of you who, like me, primarily experience digital magic through Magic Online, or not Magic Online, Magic Arena, if I can remember how words work, it would be great. For those of you who, like me, experience magic digitally primarily through Magic the Gathering Arena, 
sometimes it's hard to get the cards you need when you are on a shoestring budget and don't have the time to grind it out. That's where Grey Viking Games comes in with their collection of arena codes. You can get, for example, uh, I don't know how long it's going to be till they have them out, but I know they will have them out before long, pre-release codes for Innistrad Midnight Hunt, wherein you can pick up six boosters, and it's like $7. So you get the benefits of having gone to a pre-release on Arena without having to pay for a paper pre-release. And if you use the affiliate code that is down in the description below, if you're listening slash watching this on CC or Pure MTGO or YouTube, and if you're anywhere else, it is in the description, or it's in my pinned information on in the Facebook group. Uh, you use that affiliate link, they know we sent you, and it makes everybody happier. So, Brew of the Week is a segment where I'm highlighting a deck or concept that I feel like is valuable to get into, whether from the standpoint of it attacks a format in a certain way, it is really, really cheap for the amount of power level it presents, or it represents a great entry point into multiple formats, despite the fact that the initial investment might be a little high. And this week's brew is kind of not a brew, but it is a great investment piece. And that is, we're taking a look at the Blue Delver archetype. Y'all had to know this was coming. I was going to talk about this eventually, right? I've talked about it a little bit in regards to Pauper before when I did my segment, when I did my episode that featured the Saltai uh, land grant version of Delver in Pauper. And I still stand by, that's a deck I want to work on, but the core concept for Blue Delver decks, regardless of the format, is efficiency. You are efficient at every step. You deploy efficient threats married to efficient answers, allowing you to play a very lean mana curve and hit your land drops without, miss, without flooding it. You play efficient cantrips to smooth out your draws to make sure you're drawing the right cards for the right matchups. And the way the deck wins is just by sort of elegantly dancing around with your opponent through the middle of the game. You stick a threat. Some some games will feature you stick a threat early, you protect it, and it just goes the distance. Other games, you'll have to hold the threat until your opponent's initial blitz has died down. And then you can deploy the threat once you've time-walked them through their in-game stages and have dealt with the threats that they pose. In the words of Patrick Chapin, you never really take control of the game. But what happens is when the when you get into the mid-game and then all the card filtering and finesse, the bounce spells, the, the general blueness of the deck kind of takes over, and you just kind of inconvenience your opponent to death. And essentially what you do is, unlike a control deck, you're not seeking card advantage as your primary method of dominance. Instead, you prefer subverting the pace of the game. At your core, what you're interested in doing with Delver is making your opponent play the other way. So if you're playing against an aggro deck, you're trying to slow them down. 
and make them settle into removing threats and playing haymakers to try to win the game that way, as opposed to just tempoing you out the way they normally would a control deck. Versus when you're playing against control, you want to go the other way with that. You want to land a threat, you want to make it hard for them to fight over, and you just generally want to frustrate your opponent's mana development in the sense that they can't get ahead of you because they've got to deal with this threat, but you're not making it easy for them, either through disruption of their hand or counter magic to protect it. Or just getting the threat back or playing another one. From a customization standpoint, by the archetype's very nature, there's an inherent amount of variance between lists. There is no generic list. There is no... Like, there, there's no one way to build Delver. Because your cards are chosen with the constraints of the format that you're intending to play in mind, whether it's standard, modern, pioneer, or even differing from area to area. It's going to be different depending on what you think you need to beat. Each color splash adds a different element to the core archetype. For example... Red adds an element of reach and makes you even further takes you even further down the tempo-oriented rabbit hole. Uh, in standard, I would wager that red will end up being the best version of the deck. In the sense that you get to pick up cards like Expressive Iteration, Magmatic Channeler. Uh, you can play Goldspan Dragon after sideboarding as sort of a haymaker to punish your opponent for removing Delver. Your opponent removes Delver and then you jam a dragon down their throat and they just can't actually do anything about it. Uh, black the black variants of Delver tend to be a little bit more graveyard oriented. They tend to play out of their graveyard a little bit better. Uh, in standard, cards like Siphon Insight, uh, cards like Blood Chief's Thirst, uh, Infernal Grass, Power Word Kill, you are interested in trading with everything in a mana advantage and then looking to dominate your opponent because you're just chipping in for three and removing whatever they play. You sort of function as a reverse tap-out control deck where you start the game with your game-ending threat in play and then just kind of kill everything that gets in its way. Kill or bounce everything that gets in the way. Uh... Green gives you access to mana development and additional threats, especially when you start looking into formats like Modern and Pauper. Uh, obviously, I've talked about Land Grant before and how much I believe in it for the Delver archetype, but more than that, there's also cards like Nibble Mongoose. There's cards like Lorescale Coatl, if you're playing a lot of cantrips that draw cards. Uh, whatever the, you know, Dragon's Bane Guard from Strixhaven. Or whatever that card's name is. I can't remember. The two drop, two two, magecraft, put a plus one, plus one counter on it. Like, that's that's pretty good in the context of a Delver threat. Because Delver's already doing damage. And then you've got this other thing just sitting there on the ground getting bigger. And they got to worry about that. And when they got to worry about multiple things at a time, there's a problem. You get in white, you pick up unconditional removal. And potentially some form of recursion or really powerful su supplemental threat in the form of cards like, in the past, Geist of St. Traft, or more recently, 
Uh, God, I'm trying to think of what's available after rotation. I'm not sure in what. Or you can play it as a supplemental piece in like the Magecraft deck and just cut down your creature numbers or, you know, squeeze in some more spell lands in order to facilitate the Delver flipping more often. Uh, just regardless of what it is, like, each one of them is looking to beat a different kind of deck. Red, The blue-red Delver is better against small creature decks, and the burn spells can sometimes turn into ways to finish off the opponent when you knock them down low against control. The black Delver decks are interested in trading for everything at a mana advantage, so they're better against mid-range and control decks because they are better at answering giant opposing threats, but they have a harder time cleaning up small threats efficiently. The green Delver decks tend to be better against control decks because they're more interested in protecting their queen. They're more interested in getting ahead of the opponent in some form of development resource development, uh, card selection, card filtering, whatever. And then the white ones tend to be honestly kind of dependent on what the format around it looks like. I want blue-white Delver to be good and standard, but I don't know if it will be. I don't know what you pair with the Delver inside the shell. Any good, any, any Delver player can tell you you definitely need something alongside of it, but... Here's another fun fact. You don't actually have to play Delver of Secrets in your deck in order for it to be a Delver deck. For example, a really good look at it for a long time for me in blue-black was to play sort of a cantrip-driven strategy in modern that was playing uh, Tombstalker and Gurmag Angler. Or Tassiger and Gurmag Angler. Or Tassiger and Tombstalker. And you were essentially trying to play Tassiger or Tombstalker as your Delver threat. Wherein you would get to turn three and you'd be able to present Tombstalker plus Stubborn Denial. And counter their way of interacting with it. And then you've got a 5-5 flying that will close out the game in a hurry. To me, that's still on the table. I think that's still got some, some viability to it. It's still got some wings, if you will. So... Strengths and weaknesses, you're, you're, a, you're definitely a right 75 for the right weekend kind of deck. And this is the kind of deck that will reward, let me slow down and enunciate my words, it will reward good format knowledge and understanding of how to win your matchups. And if you have those things, you can win any of them. That's not to say you're going to be dominant in any of them. You're a classic 55-45, but you can swing it to like a 65-35 or a 60-40, depending on how well you know how to play your deck. This is definitely not a deck you're going to pick up out of nowhere and just dominate people with. Because it's never the most powerful deck. What it is, is the deck that brings the right tools for the right job. By that token, if you catch the wrong room on the wrong day, you can have a bad time, and you can get outmatched by aggro if you don't take them seriously, which is, again, kind of going back to how you build your deck, what color splash, whatever. Like, you can struggle mightily with aggro decks if you don't have the right removal spells for the ones you're up against. If you're playing a bunch of damage and destroy-based removal spells in a format where there's indestructible threats... 
or if you're playing inefficient exile and minus minus removal against a format that's a little bit faster and looser with its creature deployment and as such would be a little bit better suited to playing the red splash whatever the case may be the general concept is the same it's just about what cards what color and ultimately how you fill the different roles that your deck is asking you to there's no general framework it's just a case of examining what's available within each color, knowing what you need to beat, and deciding on which one you want. From an outlook standpoint, this has become one of Magic's premier archetypes, and will soon be playable in every competitive format. And by soon, I mean right now, because it's already legal in Standard on Arena and Magic Online. It is going to be iterated upon endlessly, because you know we Magic players love our stupid little blue tempo creatures and it's one of those decks that just is sort of evergreen in how much people want to play it, it the, the demand for this deck never goes away it is always a deck that people want to play So with that all ironed out and out of the way, let's move on to our main topic. Our main topic is brought to you by Patreon. The support, the pe the support of the people at Patreon has been one of the main reasons this show has been able to continue the way it has over the years. It's been three years now, a little over, about three years and a month since I started doing this, and it has very, very quickly become one of the few things I look forward to. <laughs> anymore so again from the bottom of my heart i want to thank the people who have been supporters of the show especially those of you who've been around since day one you know y'all remember when i had no idea what i was doing when it came to recording these things but you've been here you've you've pushed me and helped to keep me consistent and helped to make me better and i would like to extend my gratitude for that. If you would like to join the ranks of the patrons of this show, the Homeward Pathfinders, head over to patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. This show's always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help me keep doing it, head over there, become a patron, and take advantage of your rewards. Our main topic this week is what I called common misconceptions, or rather, misconceptions about commons. So, commons in Magic kind of get a bad rap especially lately in the day and age of powerful mythics like ember cleave and just sort of obnoxiously utilitarian uncommons like uh oh i'm having trouble with words again obnoxiously utilitarian uncommons like drown in the lock or powerful creatures like bone crusher giant like why do commons matter right i mean they're not powerful they're not valuable they're not important that's what i hear incessantly about common cards when i you know i don't hear a lot of discussion about powerful commons outside of the limited world or outside of pauper context but i'm here to tell you commons are one of the most valuable tools in the deck builders toolkit and let me tell you what i mean reality number one there have been commons banned in every format. There are or have been 
Commons banned in every format. That's that's not an exaggeration. It's legitimate. Let me give you a few examples. We're talking about commons not being powerful. Uh, look at modern and legacies banned and restricted lists and just count the number of commons versus the number of any other rarity on that list. Just I'll, I'll wait. Mirrored and block in standard saw a total of six common ban. The five uh, the five artifact lands and uh, disciple of the vault. Attune with Aether was the unsung cornerstone of the energy mechanic. Once they banned Attune with Aether and Rogue Refiner, that deck kind of fell off a cliff because it didn't have anything to give it energy. At that point, you were breaking even on every exchange, and that's not what you needed in order for that mechanic to be built around. Growth Spiral was a standard cornerstone until it's banning. It started out as sort of a niche card you played in the uh, dedicated Simic Nexus deck, But it eventually became this sort of powerhouse. Every deck was interested in playing green and blue in order to play Growth Spiral kind of thing. Like, Growth Spiral was such a problem, it got banned uh, like a month and a half before it was going to rotate. So, don't talk to me about how commons aren't powerful. Because they are. They are powerful enough to get themselves banned. Like, the modern ban list is littered with modern uh, common cantrips that you just can't play. Faithless Looting, Ponder, Preordain. I mean, Gataxian Probe. I mean, what are we talking about here? <laughs> Reality number two. There are commons with higher price tags than rares and mythics. Lightning Bolt's reprint, been reprinted about a hundred times, it feels like, and it still holds a $3 price tag because it's just the best thing you can get for one mana. It, it sets the rate, right? But $3. Or you really want to get into commons not being valuable, go check on that price on Rhystic Study or Oubliette. I'll, I'll wait. Now, this was a little bit better before they did a reprint on Oubliette that made the, the reprints price quite a bit lower, but Oubliette was a $38 common. Or like a $50 common at one point or another. Really? Manamorphose, despite being now reprinted like four times, is still hovering around a $6 common. Because its original printing from Shadowmoor was, in fact, common. And we have numerous other examples, and we cannot blame all of that on Paper Pauper, because we don't play a lot of Paper Pauper. Nobody does. There are isolated little pockets of it, and then players will pick up cards in order to play at events, like bigger events, but we're not having those right now. So, what? You know, how are we going to blame this on Pauper? We, we can't do it. There's commons all over the place that command higher price tags than several rares and mythics that have seen a lot of play in the past. And then reality number three, commons define formats. One mana burn and two mana removal dictate what threats you're allowed to play in a format. If lightning bolt's legal, your creature with three toughness or less needs to provide value or it's not worth playing. 
if fatal push is legal, if cast down is legal, well, if cast down is legal, your creature that costs two or more mana and isn't legendary needs to provide value right now, or it's not worth playing. And Heartless Act for the last two years, you know, since Ikoria dropped, Heartless Act. If you're not playing plus one plus one counters, you gotta have a really good reason to play creatures that cost more than two mana. They've either got to give you value now, force your opponent to have the Heartless Act right now, or they've got to have a way to dodge Heartless Act in your deck. A solid number of available counterspells in a given format are commons. You look at modern right now, counterspell is legal. You've got, uh, in standard, Disdainful Stroke. You've got... Uh, dissipate. We've got, I mean, there's, there's more. It would just take me a minute to sit down and iron them all out. Playable cantrips in a format are almost exclusively commons with the obvious caveat and standard right now of cards like expressive iteration and siphon insight that are both, that are uncommon and rare respectively, but like considers a common and it's the best cantrip. It's, surveil one draw card but like it's still really good right especially in a format where you've got flashback cards an undersold aspect of common common rarity is when watsy really wants to push a mechanic they tend to put a lot of its enablers and or payoff cards at common look at affinity the affinity deck that was so dominant and all five artifact lands are common Frogmite was common. Murrenforcer is common. Thoughtcast is common. Galvanic Blast in Scars of Mirrodin is common. Shrapnel Blast. I believe... No, Shrapnel Blast isn't common. But Galvanic Blast is. I know that one is. I mean, Skark Prospector is a common... Goblin Matron's a common. Attune with Aether, it was a common. <laughs> I mean... Uh, delirium Payout, cards like Vessel of Nascency, cards like Grapple with the Past. Seder Wayfinder in graveyard-oriented formats. These are all common cards. Faithless Looting, to help set up the graveyard mechanics in Innistrad, was a common. Thought Scour, to set up the graveyard mechanics, is a common because wizards want you to play these cards and in order to get you to play these cards they have to give you a lot of them so when wizards really wants to make a mechanic powerful look at how many cards that are common push that mechanic and that's how you know whether or not it's helpful if we had gotten a couple more self-sacrificing permanents revolt would have been a better mechanic in standard but because we didn't get any cheap efficient ways to put permanents into our own graveyard during that format. A card like Renegade Rallyer, which looked really, really good on the surface, was just not playable. A surprising number of key sideboard cards are commons. Ancient Grudge, Smash to Smithereens, Destructive Revelry, uh, Disenchant, I mean, the list goes on and on. These are commons. 
that every sideboard's playing. Hi there, neighbor. Uh, and not for nothing, but the best 60-card constructed format is all commons all the time. You know I had to get in there. It's a very popular format. What can I say? <laughs> in summation, a lot of these cards are uncommonly good, but it's not a rare occurrence for common card ubiquity to reach mythic proportions. I'm not going to see myself out. This is what I do. This is what you signed up for. All joking aside, commons are a bountiful resource, whether they're filling out a curve or adding a critical mass of cantrips to your Delver deck or just giving you enough playable artifacts to make Affinity an actually good deck. They also have surprisingly stable prices if they have eternal implications, making them an excellent conservative investment in your sort of magic portfolio, which is to say, obviously I don't condone dumping a whole bunch of money into magic, but if you spot a common that you think is, is currently a nickel and is going to be 50 cents in a few months, I'm not going to be mad at you for buying up 15, 20 copies or 100 copies if you've got the dough. That's ultimately your decision. And it's not going to be one of those things where you get a massive ROI, like a huge return on investment. You're not going to get like a two, 300% return on investment in most cases. But you'll probably get a little bit more than you wanted. Uh, you know, you just got to be careful with it. Commons are weird in that regard because they're either really, really stable or really, really bad, really volatile based on how well they get played in a given format. Uh, it just, all it's, as I said to begin with, it's one of the best tools, <clears throat> excuse me, in the deck builder's toolkit especially in the budget deck builders toolkit, because you can find lots of decks that are mostly common cards that provide you with great ways to attack a given format. So at the end of the day, we don't talk about them enough outside of the context of pauper, but I love me some commons and I hope you learn to love them just as much as I do. So that's all I got for this episode, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. We will be back next week with our first impressions of uh, Innistrad Midnight Hunt Standard. Uh, spoilers, I'm in love because I get to cast my favorite card. And it's really good. And I love it. But. There's definitely some cool stuff going on behind the scenes. I've run into a lot of interesting decks. Uh there's just a lot to a lot to unpack about the format. It might take all night hunting for all this information. Puns. I've got them. So that's all I've got for this week, everybody. Uh, we didn't have any submissions for dad jokes that I remember seeing. So if you've got questions, comments, concerns, send them to me on Twitter at HomewardPathMTG. Send them on the Facebook group, Homeward Pathfinders. Uh I'm in the Discord for Heasy Game Media, and speaking of Discord, one of the rewards for patronage is the Patron Pathfinders Discord, wherein we talk about episode topics. I'm dumping deck lists in there once I have them ironed out. Uh, I will be executing a little bit of a deck dump after I get this episode published for patrons of the show, uh, what decks I'm playing right now in Standard on Arena, uh, and then... 
again, don't forget to check out the rest of the network and all the people who help make this show possible. So with that, remember, everybody's going through stuff right now. Things are not, no matter how much we want them to be, they are not back to normal yet. So when interacting with others, always lead with kindness. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So let's laugh hard. Cheer commons. Be kind. We'll catch you next week, everybody.